Hello and welcome my partners in crime and thank you for joining me again today. As you can see I'm back in my other part of where I have to do this because my office is being packed away and moved around and all different stuff being done in it. As um, the UK opens up so do we I suppose don't we? So this is where you'll see a few changes um, just to do with the background for now and um, I don't know what it's going to look like in the end but for now um, this is going to be where I'm going to film. Uh, a bit more comfortable I think to show you the truth. Okay before I start on this case um, I know I have a warning with the intro and everything it tells you you know there's graphic content and all this in it. This case is a case of a murder of a seven year old child. So you know I, it's, I'm quite graphic I'm not holding anything back um, because it's, I don't believe that's what we should be doing. So if this case is not for you, you don't like anything to do with murders of children, then I suggest that you know you watch another one of my videos and stuff that hasn't got that in it. So I just want to give you a bit of a warning before we start that there is content in this video that will be upsetting to some viewers. Okay, so enough about that. Um, before we start, you know what to do, put your thumbs up, um, you know subscribe hit the like button which this thumbs up is you can hit the bell button and you can also follow us on Instagram and on Facebook and you can hear this case at some point on Spotify once I have time to do it so now we've done all the housework parts of it let's get on with this case so it's a case today it's a harrowing really and it's a terrible terrible murder of a young seven-year-old child now this murder took place actually on the 8th of October 1992 and this is in a Sunderland case in the UK, uh, Tyne and Weir actually in Sunderland and um, it's unsolved. So that means that out there somewhere there is a child murderer. So as we go through, I think the, the thing is with this case, it's unsolved but it's had a lot of stuff in it. You've had people arrested, people got off, you know, quitted, other people questioned, no, you know, but no one, I think since 1993, 1994, has actually been charged with this murder. So I think the best thing to do is let me just take you through a bit of a timeline of this case before we really go into it. So on the 8th of October 1992, Nikki Allen's body was found, was discovered really in bloodstained, it was just terrible in this derelict building um, and literally you could see where she lived from there and she was found in the basement of this burnt out building but we'll go into that in a bit more. Now uh, Nikki's body had to be identified by her grandfather and her grandfather was um, Dickie Prest and um, it must have been harrowing for him. Uh, so what the police have said that happened to Nikki is that once she was stabbed 37 times but she was actually killed they believe before that by a house brick and where her skull actually was smashed in with that. So um, there was no evidence of sexual assault on this child at all but this death was terrible. It was horrific. On the 11th of October 1992 a man had already been um, sort of questioned and he was released then without charge at that point 
on the 12th of October 1992, an artist's impression of the man seen in the area with the girl at the time of Nicky's disappearance was also issued. And on the 13th of October 1992, police issued the composite of the clothing and stuff that Nicky was wearing at the time of her you know, disappearance, really, and abduction and murder. And I think the reconstruction was staged as well. So this is to jog everyone's memory. So this was done very, very, very quickly. So from the 8th till the 13th, really, things were done very, very quickly here to try and get some information, some, you know, get the case out there. This was a very close-knit community. So on the 18th of October, 1992, neighbour George Heron was charged with her murder. So on the October 19th, 1992, there was a large pre police presence which needed to be outside uh, Sunderland's Magistrates Court. Um, and this is when um, George Heron actually first appeared actually in the dock um, for the first time under these murder charges. November the 21st, 1993, the murder case against Heron collapsed and the judge at Leeds Crown Court, because I think it had to be moved from Sunderland because of uh, people want to kill this man. You know, you have a child murderer or so they fall. And um, uh, they moved it to Leeds and I don't think it was far enough to tell you the truth because it didn't stop them. There was a lot of vigilancy, but we'll go into that in a little bit longer. But on the 23rd of November, 1993, this man now, this really, um, it, was, it was acquitted because really the case against him and uh, we've spoken about this case and I'll go into more detail about this about police powers, you know, pace. And I think this case highlights really why we have to stick to pace rules to either keep a prisoner, that someone that is, you know, charged with murder and not being able to release him out on the street, or to make sure that an innocent man isn't being persecuted for a crime that he didn't do. So we'll go into that in a little bit as well. So listen, it was about a seven and a half hour trial and he was um, found not guilty and uh, he had stated that he would never be able to return to the North East and I think he ended up somewhere else in England, you know, or Wales or Ireland, somewhere like that. He couldn't have, it would have been unsafe for him. So the trial had lasted six weeks and he had spent, um, George had spent about 13 months in um, custody anyway, waiting to go to this trial. Um, on this murder charge, where he was substantially, you know, really uh, acquitted for, and I'll go into that in a little bit longer. So in 1994, Sharon um, Henderson, this is uh, Nicky's mum, brings a civil suit against George uh, Heron for and charging him really because he'd got away with it in the criminal court. So she wanted, I think it was the, the grandfather actually, as well, Dicky, that actually funded this civil case against him. Uh, and I think the charging him with battery of a child and it was resulting in her death. Now, I'll go into the differences also after between the difference of a criminal court and a civil court. And I suppose the best known case you'd know for that is the O.J. Simpson case, really. That he got away with murder, hadn't he? And then the family then took him to civil court uh, where he was found uh, liable, not guilty, liable for that murder. So we'll go into a little bit of that but that was in 1994. So really, that was the last time in this case that anyone was even convicted of anything to do 
with this murder, but it didn't last long, did it? He was trialled in 2000, uh, 1993, and he was um, out, really, 1994. That was it. The civil suit then took um, effect, and we'll go into that in a little while longer. In September 2013, Crime Watch reconstructed um, and put this case firmly back into the public eye, and it needs to be in the public eye. Even now, you know, when we think this is 2013 and there is other things that's coming up, but is it really in the public eye as much as it should be? We have a seven-year-old child terribly murdered. You know, it's just graceful, really, that no one has been called for this murder up until now. But um, so, you know, Crime Watch is a great program in the UK and it, it done a great reconstruction. And it, this really, this program did produce quite a lot of leads actually, give it that, it did. But unfortunately, no arrests. So in February 2014, Northumberland Police, they arrested Sunderland serial killer. And his name is Stephen um, Grieverson. And he was arrested on suspicion of Nicky's murder. Now he was questioned and bound and um, Nikki's mum, you know, she writes to him and asked him really to cooperate with the inquiries and this, that and the other. But the detectives later say, you know, that he's really, he hasn't got anything to do with it. And so he was bound and that was it. He was, you know, um, and there was no further action taken against Stephen. But we'll have a look why they believe that Stephen may have had something to do with it. And I'd like to know your opinion on whether you think he still might have had. You know, you never know. You never know, because this man is a serial killer. I think he's named the, like the Sunderland Strangler. So by August 2015, really, there wasn't much going on, was there? You'd had a man arrested very shortly after the murder. You'd had him, him, him acquitted. You'd had a serial killer questioned. You know, this is hope for these, this mother. This is hope for this family that something's going to, you know, this, this child is going to get justice. No, and then nothing happens with him. He's released without charge. Then 2016, um, sort of different things were coming out. You know, we've got DNA now. You know, the advances in DNA even in 2016 were a lot, lot better. You know, amazing to what they were in two, you know, 1992, 1993 time. So there was lots of things going on. But she did in 2016 release, um, or she launched really, this online petition urging, urging the Northampton, um, Northumberland police to carry out really much more thorough investigation. I think she wanted a review of this case because you're talking about policing in 1992-93 time. It's not the same as it is today. It's not the same as from 2015, 2016 to what it is today. So she was right, and I think 500 people signed that petition to really sort of get behind her. But the thing is, if there's no evidence at that point, or they didn't know there was any evidence at that point, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, to reopen a case when there isn't anything. But then they found, I think, 2018, they found DNA. So it's 2017. The um, Northumberland Police had this dedicated new forensic team and they said that they had found um, DNA, a male, an unknown male's DNA um, on uh, Nikki's body. So, you know, and I always say to you when someone's stabbed, you know, 37 times, bashed over the, the brick, 
there's evidence there. But in 1992, 1993, it would have been very difficult to get that evidence. So if they'd stored all this stuff correctly, you know, and sealed, and as we've said before, we've lost a lot of cases where people haven't stored evidence and stuff uh, properly. So when it comes to where we have these advances in DNA, we have to have evidence kept so well that you can use it to find a killer. Listen, we've gone through the timeline and now I'm going to go into the details of this murder and the suspects and everything about this murder. But I first wanted to give you that outline so you can see this is the longevity of this case. This child's murder was nearly 30 years ago. We're now in 2021 and no one yet has been brought to justice, really, for the murder of this child. So this is the case of Vicky Allen, seven-year-old child, brutally murdered in 1992. So in 1992, in October 1992, the night of this happening, you had Nikki and her mum and her siblings, and we'll go into their ages and stuff in a minute, at the grandfather's house of where she lived. Now he lived the floor above her. That's where he lived, in this block of flats, and I'll show you about them in a minute. And literally, she was a lovely girl, happy girl, and she said she wants to go and watch the telly. So there's a few different stories that I've read about this. Some People have wrote and said that Nikki was seen, you know, outside a pub. That's the last time she was seen. Other people have said, like her mum, that she had left her grandparents' house, the next floor up from her flat. And Nikki wanted, and this was just before 10pm at night, so Nikki wanted to run off first, you know, and um, go and watch the telly. So the mum was a few minutes behind her, but she could see her, over the balcony on the bed. So she had to go down the stairs and run along the balcony. And um, I think that's when she was reported, I don't know if it's when she's reported missing, but the mum said that she could see her there. So some, as I said, some stories have said that the girl, that Nikki had left the grandfather's about two hours before, about 8.30 at night. But the mum is saying it, it was about, I'm, I think this is how it reads actually to show the truth, is that she left just before 10pm at night and she and her other three children were walking slowly behind, a few minutes behind if that, really saying goodbye, this, that and the other. And Nikki ran down the stairs and asked to go, you know, and she could see her over the balcony going down and that would have been it. Um, when she got home, Sharon, the mother, um, Nikki wasn't there. That was it. She was gone. And I, it was a few hours she kept looking for her and all the neighbours. This is a very close-knit community. I don't think Sharon was with her husband at the time, or her partner at the time, but he still had a close relationship with the kids and her. But they had the grandparents living above them. They'd live in this building for quite a long time. So it's a very good community. People knew each other. They knew everyone. She sounds the alarm that Nikki's gone missing. And everyone now is out looking for this child. 
So these flats, I think it's Wargraft uh, or Weregraft in Sunderland. And um, I think I've got a picture of it, but the flats have been pulled down by then because they're quite old. I mean, this is a very old case really when you think about it, isn't it? So, and right opposite them flats, you could see an old sort of warehouse, really. And um, Nikki's clothes were found, I think the next morning, about 10 a.m. Her coat and her shoes, not anything else, she was fully clothed actually, but her coat and her shoes were found outside the building. And then Nikki's body was found in the basement of this really old burnt out, out warehouse. Um, that's where the murder had happened. But you could literally see her home across from her. Um, terrible really, terrible really. Anyway, these neighbours, they'd been searching, they found this body and I think one of the, the neighbours was the ones, only the police had been called, everyone was looking, but one of the neighbours did find her body and it, it would have been a terrible sight. You know, you're talking about a girl that's been bludgeoned to death really, she's her, they, the police have said they believe that it was a house brick that was used to smash her head in, literally, smash her skull in and her face and stuff. She was brutally attacked. They think that's what killed her. I think the autopsy said that. Um, they believe that's what, what killed her. And then she was stabbed 37 times. Now, the child was tiny, absolutely tiny. This is a frenzied attack, really frenzied. Now, the problem is, is we don't know if it was sexually motivated. You, you just don't, really. There was no signs of a sexual um, assault on her at all, but that doesn't necessarily mean it wasn't a sexually motivated attack on her. Uh, we've spoke before, haven't we? Sometimes it's the thrill of the kill is what the perpetrator needs. Or sometimes it may be because they were disturbed before they got to that part. But anyway, luckily, um, the mother didn't have to put up with that, you know, as well. But the, the, it was terrible. And her body and her, you know, uh, she wouldn't have been left in a very good state. So the mother didn't identify, it was the grandfather, uh, Dickie, that identified the body and um, it must have been actually traumatic for that man, absolutely, and for this family. One to have found out that, you know, not only is your, your family member missing, but they've been murdered in such a terrible way. So we've had two people, well, three people arrested, haven't we, for the murder. So we've had George Heron, he was 24 year old at the time of his arrest. Now he was the neighbour of Sharon and Sharon, Nikki's mum and Nikki. He hadn't lived there long. He had only been there a few weeks. His sister lived there and he'd come to live with his sister. So he hadn't been there long. But he would have known her or seen her even though he said he didn't. He would have. So in 1993, George Heron, 24, stood trial for the murder of the seven-year-old, Nikki, but was later cleared by a jury. Now, now George 
was 24. He hadn't lived in this area long. He had lived, he'd moved in with his sister. I think she had been there longer than him. He'd moved in with his sister. The locals all, so it's been said that the locals said that he was a bit of a weirdo, you know, he's the local weirdo. But I think the more you watch my cases, you know, what what is a murderer then? What is weird? You know, a murderer doesn't, just because someone may seem different to what me and you are, or how we live our life, um, it doesn't always make them a murderer. And I think this is what people get wrong. A child killer can, you know, look like me or you. They don't have to be the local weirdo. Given that, though, he had spent some time over this um, derelict building, this derelict warehouse. Um, but we don't really know much. There isn't much about George, actually, to tell you the truth, that you can really say what his character was like. He wasn't there very long. Then he was arrested for this murder. And then he was acquitted of this murder. He was moved away and stuff. So there isn't much about him. His name had been changed and everything else for this man. Um, and I, I, I know people are going to go, what? You know, this is a, you know, he's got off with murder and this, that, and you haven't changed his name. There's reasons why. There's reasons why. And, um, you know, I've said before, haven't I, when you are convicted of a crime such as this, where you have um, killed a minor in such a, a totally disgraceful way, you know, and you go to prison, things are going to happen to you in prison. Also, the public were outraged at this. This local community were outraged. And, you know, that's a reasonable, isn't it, to be outraged. But as I said, the, his court had to be changed, actually, from Sunderland Crown Court to Leeds Crown Court because of danger towards him. There was mobs of people, and that distance didn't stop them from Sunderland to Leeds wasn't far enough away to protect this man. Um, now the reason that he was acquitted of this murder is, so shortly after this murder, George actually confessed to killing her. This is what the police said. Now there was 12 interview tapes taken at the police station. So we've spoke about Pace, haven't we, before? Uh, and I'll go into more detail about that in a minute. Um, and if you don't follow the rules of PACE, what can happen? So George done 12 taped interviews, and the judge had looked at these interview tapes. He had given a confession. They said that a man was covered in blood, and they said they had found, this is what the police are saying, they had found blood spatter on his shoes and stuff like that. Okay, so the evidence, if this was him that killed this, would have been there. So the trial judge had refused to allow seven out of the 12 taped interviews with George because he says um, they were inadmissible because um, the oppression he was put under a lot of pressure. I don't, we don't know. I, mean, I haven't heard these tapes. We can't get hold of these tapes. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could, but we can't. Okay, so you can say, um, now, 
police powers and stuff come out in 1984, all right? Police, uh, police and Criminal Justice Act come out in 1984. So they were quite aware of what they had to do, these police, under these rules. And when you interrogate someone, or interview is the actual word that should be used, um, there's a process to that. You cannot put words into someone's mouth. You can't threaten, you can't, um, you know, uh, I mean, we don't know what went on. But if seven out of 12 of these tapes were not admissible in court, and actually the judge had said that, and he had criti criticised this, these police officers and the police force, actually, for their handling of this case, and especially their handling of George, and um, misrepresenting evidence. So, listen, the law is the law. If someone took you off the street and said, because you look a bit weird, that you've murdered someone, and then took you in to the police station and questioned you, I mean, this man's handed himself in. Now, this man, and we have a lot of people that do false confessions, because he could have been a bit slow, he could have been. He could have had learning difficulties, we just don't know, right? He was 24, he'd moved in with his sister. He's now gone into a police station and admitted murder, or so they say. Then these tapes, must have been awful, being interrogated by these police officers. And then they try and take it to court and the judge literally throws it out, all right? Because of the way the man was treated and that they were absolutely really, you know, the evidence wasn't used how it should have been used. If you're going to have evidence, it's got to be the right evidence. Because if you're going to convict the wrong man, there's still a killer out there. And this is the problem with this process. That's why it's there. It's there because you don't want to lose a case because of what your actions when you're investigating a crime. It's really important, that point. And we've seen this in Christopher Halliwell's case that I'd done the other day where we spoke about pace and we spoke about the interview techniques that they'd done there. It's really important that these interviews are done correctly and that the evidence is, you know, collected correctly, you know, um, evidenced, you know, properly done, so that if there's any comeback on it, you've done the process right, and then you don't have, you know, cases like this that are dropped. I think the two cases actually in this case, these two cases cost around 10 million pounds, 10 million. And really, <laughs> for what? Because there's still a murderer out there, isn't there? Okay, so the Police and Criminal um, Evidence Act, 1984, pays for short, and it's a code of practice, right? That the police and um, the police powers, or the code that regulates the police powers and protects the public's rights because you have rights. Because if you're innocent of a crime, you do not want to be told that you're guilty and be forced into making statements um, by police that should know better. And so it's there to protect. That's what it's there to do. Everyone's rights. Everyone's rights. So that's the code of practice. Now, I listen, I always say to people when they're arrested, you know, you could, you could be in there between 9 and 12 hours. And I'm not just talking about murderers, I'm talking about anybody. If you're arrested for something and 
you're, you need got mental health or you need something else, you could be in there for 17 hours. You know, give yourself something to do. Ask for the code of conduct book. Sit there and read it so you know your rights. You have the right to go to the toilet, you have the right for water, you have the right for fresh air, you have the right to be treated with respect and you have the right to have not people pressure you into saying things that are not true. And that's a really important part of the Criminal Justice Act 1984 of PACE is to protect your rights, literally. But what it does, if you breach them rules, people can literally get away with murder. So look, PACE codes of practice, they cover stop and search. I mean, there's loads of issues with stop and searches, as we all know. Arrest, detention, investigation, identification, and interviewing the detainees that you've got. So interviewing on how long you can keep them, what you can say to them, this sort of thing. Making sure it's taped, making sure you don't have questions that they, they can't answer or you, you're giving them the answer. You have to be really, really careful, really, really careful. And unfortunately in 1992, this was still going on quite a lot because a lot of cases I've done in the 90s have come back unsafe, haven't they really? We've done them on here, haven't we? There's many, many that's been unsafe or people have been convicted of a crime that they didn't do. And then the perpetrator has, who's still out there is out there killing other people and an innocent man sitting in prison. It happens a lot. So listen, this is why he was then, um, you know, allowed free because um, his confession that he made to the police was ruled inadmissible as evidence and the judge at the trial cleared him of all the charges. That was it. That was it. And um, I think now he went to um, I think the father, I think the grandfather, Nicky's grandfather and mother took him then to civil court. Now we've seen this before, haven't we? O.J. Simpson, right? He went to criminal court and in criminal court, he was found not guilty by jury. A little bit different from this case. This case was then squashed really because of other things. But O.J. Simpson's trial was, you know, he was found innocent by 12 jury, a jury, it was a jury trial can't argue with that. Then the family of Nicole Simpson then took him to a civil court and they sued him civilly for that. Now um, Sharon and the grandfather, and I think the grandfather paid the fee, the, the fee because civil court is not free, um, they took him to court and they won. So in criminal court he was found, yeah, well, cleared of all charges. But in civil court, he was found guilty. Well, not guilty, liable. There's a difference you see in the wording. The fundamental difference is really between criminal and civil law. Criminal law seeks to punish the, for the offence. Civil law seeks to achieve a remedy, usually cash or something like that to put you back in the same position you was in. I don't know how that would happen. 
when it comes down to a child's life. But anyway, such as compensation for an injury, that sort of thing, that's more what civil law deals with. By handing out a punishment or penalty, criminal law aims really to deter offenders from doing it again to other people in society and stop them really from reoffending. right? That's the main thing about criminal law. Criminal law, you're going to go to prison, you're, you know, you're going to have lots of different things, yeah, including fines. Civil law, you, you can't go to prison. So the criminal law, look at it is that, uh, that their ultimate aim, really, is to maintain the stability of the state and the society. That's what criminal law is about. Now, PACE has to be part of that to make sure that we don't have corrupt police officers that want to blame innocent people for things they didn't do, right? So that's, PACE is under that. So now civil law aims to deal with disputes between individuals and organisations. And a lot of people still can't believe that you can get off in a criminal court but still be found liable in a civil. And the reasons why actually are quite... It's about evidence, really. It's about that weight of evidence. That's what it's really about. So the decisions in criminal court will either find you guilty, won't they, or innocent. You know, guilty or not guilty. That's what they say. That's it. And in a civil court, you are liable or not liable. So the outcome of civil cases um, where one party is found liable is usually awarding the compensation, where for a criminal case, uh, a guilty verdict means um, conviction and punishment in the form of a custodial sentence, fine, or community service. So that's your general difference. And it, it, you need to understand this to see why they've, why they've wanted to get some justice, all right, for Nikki, even that. And the same as Nicole Simpson's in America case against OJ Simpson, they just wanted justice. So yes, a person can face both criminal charges and civil charges at the same time right, for a crime. And that could be anything really, you know, um, and the CPS actually will prosecute in a criminal case and then um, at the same time the wronged person then can sue then for damages in the civil court. And this is sort of what's happened here. They, they, This family allowed the criminal justice system to do its part. They feel that they've been fouled by that um, because there's no, you know, it's, it's difficult no matter how much you hear that you know someone's been arrested you want them still to be charged don't you you want them to be going to prison you want them to serve justice you know serve their time for for your murder of your child they, they didn't have that they didn't have that so they wanted something and that part of it was this civil suit against them that's against him that's what they wanted and really i think the main difference there is with criminal and civil law is really evidence it is, I don't mean custodial or fine, that's a, the difference in that. But it's really about the weight. And I always say to people the easiest way to really think about when we're looking at criminal cases and civil cases is really, you know, um, if you think that a criminal case, you're innocent until proven guilty, aren't you? The threshold for 
really for evidence to be met to put you and take away your liberty because that's what it's about is much higher in a criminal court in a civil court the, the weight of the evidence the probability of whether you did it or not is a lot less because you're only talking about a monetary um, punishment aren't you you're not talking about your liberty taken away so the threshold um, is, is a lot different and I think you know you've got one what is I think with a criminal case you're talking about certainty are you certain is that jury you know without reasonable doubt that this man did it but in civil law the probability 50-50 maybe that's enough so certainty versus probability I think that's the best way to describe it and listen in civil court George was found guilty or liable for um, her murder or her death not murder because murder is the wrong word in civil court unlawful death really but not murder you know so yes he was and he was fined and you're going to go mad when you hear this he was fined seven thousand pounds seven thousand pounds and i think up to date when i've checked no he hasn't paid a penny of it really at all because he believes he's innocent and he believes everything was um forcefully done against him and you know he could be right couldn't he so now let's talk about in 2014 another then suspects come along now this is Sunderland serial killer this is Stephen Griverson now he was arrested and quizzed over this murder and he was later told that he would face no further action that he was literally free to go now the reason they looked at him for this murder because he's a serial killer but he'd already killed I think three boys up until then I mean Nikki was a seven-year-old girl totally different MO on the face of it when you first look at it he was totally out of his MO but then I think I think he killed um, I think he, yeah four teenage boys in a series and he was committed uh, that he committed between 1990 and 1994 Nikki's death was 1992 so again in this area he was from Sunderland where she was from you know you know serial killers are serial killers so I think with with him so he was convicted of three counts of murder three different boys in Leeds Crown Court he was handed a life sentence actually on the 28th of February 1996 and he was recommended to serve 35 years you know not even a whole life term for taking these lives really Anyway, and that's even though before he could be considered by the Home Secretary for a release. But you know, listen, I'm going to talk about other things later on in, in different cases. Um, so, yeah, you know, really he could be out, couldn't he? Really? You know, we've had worse than him being allowed out. But anyway, in October 2013, Grieveson then was convicted of the 1990 murder of 14-year-old Simon Martin. He killed Simon. His MO was that where he usually strangled right that was his thing that's why he's known as the Sunderland Strangler he strangled them and he usually strangled boys but he is a serial killer so serial killers you know are not always caught are they for the crimes they've done so he could have been up for this murder 
even though Nikki was seven and she was a girl. It was the way that she was beaten and stabbed. Very similar to this case of Simon Martin. Very close connection, really. Emma's very similar. And that's what I think police fault when they interviewed him. There was no evidence. Um, of course there wasn't against him, so they had to release him anyway. He was up for lots and lots of murders anyway. But it would have been nice, wouldn't it, to have found out whether he was the killer or not at that point. Anyway, he became the Sundance Strangler and um, due to the city that he committed all the crimes in Sunderland, really. Uh, but his really preferred method of killing wasn't beating, wasn't stabbing, it was strangulation. But he did on occasion murder very similar to the way that Nikki's body was found. And plus, as I say with all these murderers, and especially this one, he's a serial killer. We only know the ones, don't we, that he's been caught for. He's not going to tell you anything at all. He's just not. There could be many, many more, and the MOs could all be different. We just don't know enough about this killer. But he was um, released without any charge and let go in any connection with um, Nikki's death. In 2016, it was reported that a young girl had come forward and she would have been 12 years old in 1992. And she come forward as a witness and that she's, after seeing, I think, a sketch on the TV, um, that she had come forward and said that she had information on who this person was. Anyway, um, I think the police were looking into that and, and a lot of leads actually have come from that. 2017, this new DNA evidence was found which could identify um, Nikki's killer. You know, the difference of DNA now is from when it was there. The advances in it are amazing, really amazing, but it takes time. We've had older cases than this solved and literally, you know, you just never know when it's going to come through, do you? So people should be worried out there. And I think in 2018, a man was arrested, um, really, in relation uh, to Nikki's murder. Now, I can't name this man, nor would I, because as with everything in this case, there has been no charges laid. I think he's been released without charge, but he remains um, under investigation. Um, and that would be because the DNA stuff and from that they can find other evidence. But DNA is relying on how that evidence was collected, how it was stored, how good it is, really. If you got that right if in 1992, if this police had got that part right, let's hope they had, this case could be solved if they hadn't got that right. And that evidence in any way has been um, tainted then that is inadmissible in court. So I think they're taking their time in this case. This was 2018. And I think again, actually in 2020, this, this person's still under investigation. But you know, patience is a virtue. This case has been nearly 30 years already. So I think this man was also rearrested in 2018. So they're questioning, they're doing things. Um, do I think that this case could be solved? If the police had done everything right in 1992 when it contains the evidence only I'm talking about. Forget about their interviewing skills and that, that was quite normal 
in the 90s and many cases were left unsafe because of their behaviour in the 90s. But they have got new police officers now coming up through the ranks and have done really since the early 2000s and this police force have got a dedicated team of forensic people working on this and policing has changed. I know it's you know it doesn't sound like it has with some of the cases we do but policing has changed. People are more aware now. People, These officers now are so good at their investigation skills and detection skills they will go over and over this case. They will go over that DNA every part of that clothing, every part of everything that was taken. Because you can't stab say, someone 37 times and smash someone over the head with a brick without leaving DNA somewhere. Somewhere. So it may take time to find it. But I'm sure in this case, or I'm so hopeful in this case, that they do find the evidence that will solve this case. Now I think in 2020 it was reported that um, Nikki, um, Nikki's mum Sharon met with uh, a witness and so she was really hopeful and I think for any family member like this, for you know, and I think the father's come forward and he hasn't said anything in many many years because of his, you know, this is traumatic on the families. They've lost a child, they've had to fight, 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 I mean this woman has had to fight, fight, fight for justice, have this case reopened, keep going, put pressure on to do this DNA, to get this killer off the street, to, to get justice for a child. It's a fight. And the reason it's a fight is because of the mess up at the beginning, which has now cost 10 million, okay? And then now the DNA, and I've said before, police forces have a budget for each crime they have, and DNA is not cheap to get done. But this police force are putting everything into it. And so I'm so hopeful that it gives Sharon and her family and, and Nick's father real hope that something in the future will come and a positive outcome will come out of this because this child needs justice. And if it isn't any of the people that we've mentioned, that means that there is a killer out there, a killer that could do that to a child. Isn't it awful? really to think that this child has been dead nearly 30 years and yet no one, no one has really been charged with anything since 1993. So I, I believe in the police force in this one, I believe in this, um, I think this team are working really, really hard. They are going for everything, they're working really hard and that's my wish for them, that they find justice for Nikki. So anyway, this has been the Nikki Allen case. Seven year old, taken way too young. She's left three sisters behind, her mother, a father, people that loved her, a community that cared, very close knit community. And these people still fight for Nikki until this day. So you know what to do. If you want to have a look, I think at some, I think they've got a Facebook page and um, it's all about um, getting justice for Nikki. You can have a look on much of the um, social media. There's quite a lot about this case. This case is a sad case for me because I, I, I don't like unsolved crimes at all. I've said this before. I'd rather have a crime that if someone, a perpetrator has been caught, but it must only ever be the true perpetrator that's caught, 
not someone that the police think did it. Thinking it is not enough. It's just not enough. You have to prove it. And I think this case shows it all. So, you know what to do. Thumbs up if you found this case interesting. You can um, hit the um, subscribe button. You can hit that bell button to get notifications. You can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. And this case will be on Spotify soon. So thank you for joining me. And until the next time, bye-bye.